Well, good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? We're good. Good to be together this morning. Want to welcome those of you watching uh, online and at our different locations out in Montgomery County and Loudon and Prince William and Arlington. Those of you who are new to our church, uh, we're so glad that you are here. And uh, we are continuing uh, in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And we're kind of rounding the corner here and coming to the end of this uh, gospel series. And I want to ask you a question. I'm going to pull up a few images, and I need a bit of interaction. Is that all right? All right, good. At all of our locations, kids, teenagers, everybody, I need your help a little bit. I'm going to pull up some images, and I'm going to ask what comes to your mind when you see this image. So here's the first one. What comes to your mind when you see this? It shouldn't be hard. What? She said food, fries. Some people said death. Okay. Uh, next, next image. What comes to your mind when you see this? Nike. Nike. Okay. What about this? Paw Patrol. Kids, I need your help. Yeah, Paw Patrol. A grown adult said that with passion. I don't know what's happening in your life, but uh, you must be a, a parent. Okay. Paw Patrol. How about this one? Somebody said ill. Okay. TikTok, all right, uh, what about this one? Precisely, the rebellion against God. That's what I see in this image. Okay, now, now, what comes to your mind when you see this? Yeah. Somebody said hope, the cross, Jesus' death. And I bring that image up because what's interesting to me is how popular the cross has become. So you think about it. I'll pull up a couple images here. You think about it. We rock the cross on gold chains. You look at this guy here. Let's see if we have it. Know who this is? Somebody, okay, why do you know who that is? Okay, cool. Uh, gold chain, right? Celebrities rock this all over the place. We, we get cross tattoos. You can kind of see that red circle. This is ASAP Rocky. He's a rapper. And on his knee, first of all, I have no idea why he's sitting on top of a vehicle eating off a paper plate. I have no idea why. But celebrities do whatever they want. Uh, he has a, a, ta a tattoo of a cross on his, on his knee. We rock cross jewelry. We get cross tattoos. And we can't forget the dangly earring wave that is hopefully dying out as soon as possible. We see that here. You guys have seen this before. Let's see if we have it. Here we go. Probably seen that. Well, dangly earring and parents, before you get too concerned about your son wearing one, apparently your generation did the very same thing. This picture here, some of you will recognize. Yeah. It's not new, okay? It's not new. Here's my point. The cross is no longer just a religious symbol. Now it's become a fashion symbol. But the odd thing is that originally it wasn't a symbol at all. It was an actual tool of torture, an instrument of one of the most devastating and excruciating forms of capital punishment ever invented. And so it would be like walking around and seeing people everywhere with little electric chairs hanging around their necks. People getting tattoos of electric chairs. Imagine 
pulling up to church today and seeing a huge statue of an electric chair on top of the building. That would be weird. So why is the cross such a popular symbol? Here's why. Because when Jesus died, something happened that literally changed the course of history. And here's my main point today. No matter what you think about Jesus, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. In our culture, there's overwhelmingly popular opinions about Jesus. But here's the thing. You do not understand who Jesus is unless you understand his death. Even if you understand some of his teaching, even if you embrace some of his ideals, even if you're willing to accept that he was a popular religious figure, you do not understand who Jesus is unless you understand his death. And that's what we've been working our way toward over the past two weeks and really over the entire series in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, we looked at Jesus' trial. In verses 21 to 32, last week, we looked at Jesus' crucifixion and the agony and shame he endured. And now, in verses 33 through 41, we're going to look at Jesus' death. So Mark chapter 15, verse 33 is where we're going to pick up in the story. You can meet me there or we'll have the verses up on the screen. And listen, I want you to pay close attention. Because the passage we're getting ready to read is the hinge of human history. It is the climax of God's eternal plan of salvation. Jesus' whole life and Mark's whole gospel has been building up to this point. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Here's my question for you. What comes to your mind when you see the cross? If you're here and you're not 
a Christian, you're watching, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're checking out religion, exploring Christianity. Maybe a friend invited you to come to church or watch this sermon. This is the most important question you could possibly answer, but it's not just for those who are not Christians. For those who have professed faith in Jesus, it's the most important question we could possibly answer. What comes to your mind when you see the cross? And I just want to point out three things we see right here in this passage in Jesus' death. Number one, we see the judgment of God. Number two, we see the mercy of God. And number three, we see the power of God. Here's number one. First thing we see is the judgment of God. Now, before we even look at this in the passage, I realize that a lot of us struggle with even the idea of a God who judges and condemns people. We got to make space for us to be honest when we think about these things. Often we think, isn't God loving? Doesn't the Bible even say that God is love? And so if he's loving, won't God just accept and, and, and look past our failures? How can you have a loving God who judges people and condemns people? Well, first of all, God is perfectly holy and consistently just. So he cannot simply ignore sin. As the creator and righteous ruler of all things, God has the right and responsibility to hold us accountable for the ways that we contribute to the evil and brokenness of this fallen world. But listen, God's justice isn't just legal, it's deeply relational. Let me explain what I mean. Often we ask that question and we struggle with the idea of God's judgment, even if we don't realize it, because we tend to pit love and justice against each other at least when it comes to God. But listen, God will judge sin, not in spite of his love, but because of his love. Let me say that again. God will judge sin, not in spite of his love, but because of his love. Here's why. Because love is never indifferent towards sin or injustice. Think about it. The more you love someone or something, the angrier you get when that person or thing is threatened. If you love somebody who's abused, you think about a child being abused at school or a friend being abused at work, an elderly person being abused in a nursing home or something like that. If someone you love is abused, there is a righteous indignation that drives you to pursue justice, to hold somebody accountable for wrongdoing. Why? Because you love that person and you can't tolerate a situation that makes them unsafe. Well, even if it's not a person, let's just say it's a value. Right? If you love equality or you love liberty, if that's a core value for you, then when a person or a group of people's rights are violated, you get angry and you demand justice, even if you don't know them personally. Why? Because you love, you value, you're devoted to equality or liberty. Listen, the idea of justice and judgment is inherent to the idea of love. Because true love never just shrugs its shoulders at evil. Listen, God's judgment is not a contradiction of his love. It is an expression of his love. God loves creation. 
He loves humanity. He loves his glory so much. And he will not, he cannot tolerate anything that threatens what he loves. And this is why I love studying theology from people who have been oppressed or have experienced evil and suffering that they had no power to overcome because they understand at a visceral level that you can't have a good God without a just God. You can't have God's love without God's judgment. Why would you ever want to worship a God who is indifferent towards sin? Why would you even believe in a God whose moral standards rise no higher than popular opinion or current cultural trends? But that's precisely what so many of us expect from God. We reserve the right to judge others, but somehow think God has no right to judge us. No right to tell us that our desires, our beliefs, our choices are wrong. And that pride, that overinflated view of ourselves and our own ideas is the essence of all sin. We sin because we believe the lie that our way is wiser, better, and even more righteous than what God himself has revealed. Our truth, our sexuality, our politics, our plans— We think our way is wiser and better and even more righteous than what God himself has revealed. And our sin not only disrespects God, but it threatens the purity and harmony of the world he loves. And God will not tolerate it. He can't. And so what we see here in Mark 15 is the manifestation of God's compounding anger And hatred towards sin. What we see is a picture of God's judgment. Throughout the Bible, darkness is often a heads up that God is the one at work executing his judgment against sin and injustice. And so in Exodus 20, extreme darkness covered the land of Egypt right before the death of all the Egyptian firstborn sons. When the prophets talked about the day of judgment, they described a mysterious, overwhelming darkness covering the earth. Listen to this. Read this. Amos chapter 8 verse 9. Listen to what God says through the prophet Amos. Listen. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And even hell is described as outer darkness. And this is what happens while Jesus is on the cross. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, you remember Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is about 9 a.m. So after hanging on the cross for about three hours, now around noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, pause. If Jesus is really the Messiah, then when darkness comes, you would think that God is about to rain down his judgment on all the people mocking and crucifying Jesus. But that's not what happens. It turns out that Jesus is the one being judged by God. 
And he quotes from Psalm 22, a psalm about an innocent man who's being mocked and violently abused and feels abandoned by God. Look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic. Mark translates that for his Greek audience, which means, here it is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the judgment of God. And I think what's happening in verses 35 and 36, when some people in the crowd give Jesus sour wine, and they say maybe he's calling for Elijah, I don't think they're showing him compassion. I think they're still mocking him. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and the Jews believed that he would occasionally return in times of crisis to to protect and rescue the righteous. You even see this in the Old Testament that Elijah or an Elijah-like figure will one day return to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. So they're giving Jesus wine to dull his pain and prolong the torture. And I think they're laughing and they're saying, if he's really the Messiah, let's see if Elijah shows up and helps him. And just like they expected, Elijah doesn't show up. Eventually, Jesus took his last breath and died. And this is precisely what they expected. This precisely confirmed what the Jewish leaders would have thought, that Jesus is being condemned by God. You remember, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. The Messiah is coming to conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. Therefore, Jesus cannot possibly be the Messiah. And here's the problem. They had the right premise, but they came to the wrong conclusion. Yes, Jesus was being judged by God. Yes, Jesus was experiencing God's anger and condemnation towards sin. But think about it. If Jesus is innocent, like Pilate, the crowds, and even the Roman soldier acknowledges, then whose sin is God judging on the cross? Whose sin summoned the darkness and provoked God's wrath? And until you understand that question, you cannot understand Jesus. Because that question is at the heart of his mission. It's at the heart of the gospel, and it always has been. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. We looked at this over the last couple of weeks, Isaiah 53. This was written 700 years before Jesus even came. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not his iniquity, but the iniquity of us all. 
And over 700 years later, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that's why Jesus himself says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Why? As a ransom for many. In Jesus' death, we not only see the judgment of God, but we also now see the mercy of God. The mercy of God. That's what's happening in verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry. He literally screamed and breathed his last. And what did Jesus scream out from the cross before he died? John recorded it for us. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and I want everybody to say these three words with me. What did Jesus say? It is finished. Come on, here all across our location, say it with me. It is is finished. Say it like you believe it. It is finished. This is what Jesus screamed out on the cross right before he took his last breath. And the question you got to answer is what is finished? What's finished? The answer is the work that he was sent to accomplish. Listen, Jesus didn't simply die just because he was suffocating and could no longer breathe. He didn't die simply because his heart could no longer handle the excruciating stress that his body endured. Jesus died because he decided to. He died because that's the reason he came. The eternal Son of God voluntarily offered his life as a substitute for ours. And as Jesus died, something happened that should fill our hearts with overwhelming wonder and worship. When Jesus died, verse 38, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As one writer said, this was God's exclamation point on the death of his son. You say, Mike, what in the world does that mean? Well, remember, the temple had become a corrupt institution at this point. And so the tearing of the temple curtain was in one sense God announcing that his presence would no longer dwell there. It's like placing a sign on on a property that says this building is condemned. It's no longer being occupied. But something else is happening as well. You see, the Jerusalem temple was organized based on proximity to the presence of God. So there were different sections that required different levels of access. Let me show you a simplified diagram that I got from Dr. Ralph Wilson. This is a diagram that, a very simplified one that takes away all the furniture and just kind of helps you see how it was organized. And there were four separate courtyards outside the actual temple building. You had the court of the Gentiles. Right? This is where foreigners, this is where non-Jews were able to come. This is where Jesus shows up and he drives out the money changers. But the Gentiles couldn't go any further than this because they were unclean. Then you had the court of women. You see that in green. This is where Jewish women were allowed to be. It's also where the treasury boxes were. So this is where Jesus observed the poor widow giving her last Coins, but women could not go any further than that. So then you have the court of Israel. 
which is sometimes called the court of men. It was reserved for ceremonially clean Jewish men. We're moving in closer and closer until you get to the court of priests, which is in Red. This is where the Levites, the priests, would perform their ministerial duties. This is where the altar was, where they would give burnt sacrifices. And then you make your way to that little yellow building, the actual temple building, which had two rooms in it. It had the holy place. Only the priest on duty could enter that room. And then going even further... There was the most holy place or the holy of holies, the most sacred place, not just in the temple, but on earth. It was the place where the presence of God dwelled. And the high priest was the only person who had access to the holy of holies. And he was only authorized to enter one time per year on the day of atonement in order to sacrifice on behalf of God's people. So put all of this together. Put all of this together. What was God communicating when he tore the temple curtain from top to bottom? God was providing a physical illustration of a spiritual reality, a new spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality that Hebrews 9 through 10 explains in more detail. When Jesus died, he was establishing a new covenant that was ratified by his own blood. The old things had passed away, and now all things were becoming new. Jesus is the new temple. So that rather than some people having limited access to God in a particular place, now all people can enjoy unlimited access to God through faith in a particular person. Jesus is the superior high priest. So that rather than waiting for a sinful man to make a temporary sacrifice for our sins and for his own sins, by the way, once a year, every year, over and over again, now through Jesus, we can have the authorized audacity to come before the throne of grace with boldness to find mercy in our time of need. Jesus is the full and final sacrifice, and he's the fulfillment of the old covenant law so that now our relationship status with God and our confidence in God's love is based on Jesus' report card, not our own. Now you say, but, but why, why was sacrifice necessary for all this? Like, this is why I can't really get with Christianity in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because why does it have to be so bloody and glory and this seems so primitive? Why is sacrifice necessary for all of that? Why can't God just forgive us? Well, one way to think about that is that it's just an eternal law of justice. The penalty of sin is always death. But also think about it this way. Pastor Tim Keller's uh, memorial service was this past week. Such a, just a legendary pastor. I, honestly, other than my, I, I, my dad, I, I don't know if there's any other preacher that has shaped my understanding of the gospel more than Pastor Tim Keller. And so I, I watched the memorial service online. And I've, I've literally, I've listened or read like hundreds of Tim Keller sermons at this point. To be totally honest with you, if I'm preaching, I'm either quoting or plagiarizing Tim Keller. I'm just going to say that up front. <laughs> that just covers a multitude of sins now. And I'll never forget, as a younger believer, Tim Ke- hearing Tim Keller answer this question, like why, 
sacrifice. And he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Like just on a human level. He said, you've never loved a broken person except through costly substitutionary sacrifice. That's the essence of love. Like, you think about it. It's, it's easy to love somebody whose, whose life is perfect, somebody who has no flaws. That's why it's so easy for me to love my wife. <laughs> I know, right. Think about it. Think about what it costs you, just the reality of loving somebody who has brokenness, who has needs, who has problems. You cannot love that person without their condition affecting you, without somehow their condition being transferred onto you. Let me give you a practical example. I think about so many people in our congregation right now who have adopted or in the process of adopting children. who have made a decision that I'm going to love some children that I did not physically, I was not physically involved in creating. I don't even know these children. And if you talk to any, anybody who has adopted a child or is in the process of waiting, and you know that you cannot love an adopted child without entering into their condition, without the reality of their issues and their trauma and their brokenness actually coming into your life, coming onto you. The only way for you to lift them up is for you to become weighed down. All real life-changing love, it requires substitutionary sacrifice where I'm willing to give you what I have and I'm willing to enter into all of your brokenness and all of your pain. And listen, this is what happens in the gospel. This is the mercy of God, that God doesn't just demand sacrifice, he becomes one for us. That he is actually willing to become weighed down by humanity, that he's willing to take on our brokenness and our sin. Paul says Jesus literally became sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what God does for us. And when this becomes real to you, even if you don't fully understand it, if this starts to become awakened in your heart and in your conscience and you begin to see Jesus for who he really is and you begin to see the love of God in Jesus and the justice of God in Jesus and you begin to begin to taste a glimpse a foretaste of the mercy of God toward you, then it unleashes the power of God in your life. And I want you to see something, because remember what I said, the Gentiles, they could not go any further than the courtyard of the Gentiles. Women 
could not get any closer to the presence of God than the courtyard of, of women. And what happens next in the Gospel of Mark is that you see the impact of Jesus on who? A Gentile and women. You see the power of God at work. Look at verse 39. It says, and when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. It didn't matter in that moment what he had believed for his whole life. It didn't matter in that moment what his other Roman friends would say or family would say about him in that moment. As he sees the justice of God and the mercy of God, the power of God is activated in his life and he makes a confession that in Mark's gospel, no other human being makes. He says, this man is truly the son of God. This centurion, the Roman soldiers from the same Greek word where we get century, right? So he, he over, would oversee, he's a commander in the Roman military who would oversee between 80 and 100 soldiers. And he would also oversee public executions for capital offenses. He would have seen other men be crucified, but there was something different about this one. And scholars debate what exactly caused him to make this confession about Jesus. But I think Mark and, the, and I think the Holy Spirit leaves it intentionally vague because conversion is ultimately the mysterious supernatural work of God. And it's like Mark writes this gospel in a way that makes that clear. I want you to see something. I want you to see something. Like bookending what we've been studying in the gospel of Mark so far. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 10... God tore open the sky at Jesus' baptism and announced, you are my beloved son. And now, at the end of his earthly ministry, God tore, same Greek word, God tore the curtain of the temple and the centurion declares this man was the son of God. I don't think it was just one specific thing that caused him to finally believe who Jesus really is. I think it was the overall effect of what he was experiencing and the power of God that was now working in his life. I think he was overwhelmed as he began to realize that Jesus was not just some popular teacher and certainly not a guilty criminal. The walls of God's mercy were closing in on his heart and he was overwhelmed by what he was experiencing. Think about what he saw. He saw Jesus' innocence. During Jesus' trial, Pilate mentioned Jesus' innocence over and over again. He saw Jesus' silence. Like he was innocent, so why wasn't he defending himself? He saw Jesus' graciousness. While people were mocking him, he could hear Jesus praying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
I wonder if he'd heard about or even talked to the other centurion that Matthew wrote about in Matthew 8, who came to Jesus begging for him to heal his servant, and Jesus recognized the man's faith and answered his prayer. A man who grew up oppressed by the Roman Empire, graciously healing the servant of a Roman soldier. This man saw Jesus' graciousness. He saw the strange supernatural signs that made it obvious, at least to him, that God himself was actually somehow involved in this crucifixion. But it wasn't just what he saw externally. It was what was happening to him internally as the Holy Spirit began connecting the dots and drawing his heart to Jesus. All of a sudden, he was seeing Jesus in a way that he had never seen Jesus before, and he believed. And what we're seeing here is a preview of the power of God unleashed through the death of Jesus, a supernatural power that ricochets through Jerusalem, breaking through hard hearts and bursting through cultural barriers. And that same supernatural power is at work today. It's why the Apostle Paul, who was so Jewish that he was a Pharisee, he blameless in the law, and he hated Jesus so much that he would chase Christians down and have them prisoned or even killed. It's why that Paul, who had experienced the transformation of Jesus, says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When Jesus died, he was taking the judgment of God so that we can receive the mercy of God and be transformed by the power of God. My question for you, and I think the question that this passage demands is do you believe that? Is that what you see when you see the cross? Is that what you see when you see Jesus' death? Do you see the judgment of God that you deserve and the mercy of God that you can never earn? Have you experienced the power of God that changes a person from the inside out? Because that's what Jesus wants for you. It's why our church exists, so that you and many more people like you can experience that like so many of us have. And the problem is that even for those of us who are Christians, we don't even believe this all the time. Like mentally we believe it. But deep down in our hearts, it's so easy for us to revert back to the old operating system that tries to earn God's performance or his, God's acceptance through our performance. It's why our confidence in God's love always feels so shaky. It's why it's so difficult for us to experience intimacy with God. Because deep down in our hearts, we revert to that old covenant operating system. 
we forget, we forget what we've been given in Jesus. As you prepare to wrap up, the band can come out. Back in 2011, a man named uh, Stephen Thomas was given 7,002 Bitcoin. Now, it's, it's all, it's, kids, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, it's like, this is simplified. Economists, don't email me. It's, it's like money that you spend online. It's like digital money. Okay, that's good enough. All right. It's stored in a digital wallet, and he saved the private keys to that digital wallet on a small hard drive. And this past March, like at least up to this past March, the article that I read, that Bitcoin was worth, that Bitcoin that he had was worth about $232 million. The problem is that years ago, in 2011, he lost the paper where he wrote down the password to the hard drive. Article pointed out that the hard drive, he only gets 10 guesses. Isn't it frustrating? It just happened to me yesterday when you can't remember your password. You know you're about to get locked out. You know it's about to happen. You only get 10 guesses. He's used eight of them. He only has two guesses left. So since 2011, he has not been able to access the $232 million worth of Bitcoin. He just gave up, at least for the time being. He can't remember how to get in, how to access it. And this is what happens to so many of us, even as Christians, and this might It might be the Holy Spirit diagnosing what is happening in your spiritual life. What tends to happen to us as Christians is we hear the gospel over and over and over and over again, and we sing about it and all that. But when rubber meets the road, when we're overwhelmed by suffering, we're overwhelmed by our sin and our failure and our inconsistency, Why can't we keep up with the Bible reading plan? Why are we so afraid to share the gospel? Why did we fall into that sin again? We're overwhelmed by our sin and inconsistency. In those moments, it's so easy for us to forget. To forget what really gives us access into the presence of God. To forget the authority that we actually have. To come before God and listen, we don't need a password, we have a person. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It's the same answer every single time. It's never what you can earn. It's never what you can accomplish. It's never how consistent you've been. It is always Jesus. Your trust in, your faith in what Jesus has done as your Savior and what Jesus is doing as your King. That's why we got to keep hearing the gospel and singing the gospel and celebrating the gospel through the Lord's Supper over and over again. 
because our hearts are prone to forget. Listen, it's not our merit that gives us access to God's presence and confidence in God's love. It's God's mercy that gives us access and confidence before God. And when you build your life on the mercy of God in Jesus, then God's power begins to do something that you cannot do. You can try to change your behavior, but you cannot change your heart. power of the Holy Spirit will begin changing you from the inside out. Changing what you want to do. Eventually changing what you're able to do. Eventually changing what you're able to help others do and become. This is the death of Jesus, it's the gospel. It's the hinge of human history, the climax of God's eternal plan of salvation. It is his message of judgment, of mercy, and power for those who believe. And so here's the question I want to leave you with. I'm going to give you a moment here online at our different locations to reflect on this question. How do you need to respond to the death of Jesus? Like right now. Like in this building, in that building, in your apartment, wherever you're watching, how do you need to respond? Not later, now. Like if you're not a Christian, do you need to respond by finally laying your life down? Giving your sin and your life and your idea is to Jesus and saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to, I'm trusting in you, Jesus, your death and your resurrection like we'll see Lord willing next week. I want to be saved. If you're a Christian, how do you need to respond to the death of Jesus? Maybe you need to fall on your face right now in gratitude and worship. Maybe you need to confess that sin that you've been hiding or clinging to in your life. Maybe you need to just ask him for help to trust him more. How do you need to respond now to the death of Jesus? Take a moment between you and the Lord.